a piece of music that's known as the silent piece. Its actual name is 4 minutes and 33 seconds. It's a piece of music by the experimental composer and conceptual artist known as John Cage. John Cage is an American who lived his entire life in the 20th century. He died in 1992. And 1952 was the premiere of a piece of music that he called 4 minutes and 33 seconds. And it was written for a piano player and several instrumentalists, and it was performed at a theater in Woodstock, near Woodstock, New York. It has three movements. But all the musicians and the pianists are instructed to play a four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. So basically, to maintain a rest through three movements, a rest if you're familiar with musical language, for three movements, and then put their instruments down conclude. That was an actual theater performance. At least on some level we say, well, I mean, it's kind of gimmicky, right? Or it's not even, it's not even music. In 1952, buy a ticket, go to a theater, and witness that. Awkward, <laughs> yeah. A rest is a rest is a rest. So you, you technically could have a score for it. And I do think they had uh, that in front of them, too. It had some classical significance, the amount of time. I'm not sure exactly what it was. I think it had some significance with the length. One April 1st, iTunes offered a free track of 4 minutes and 33 seconds by John Cage. A free download. The audience was confronted with what seemed like emptiness and it was uncomfortable for them. Emptiness is definitely, or, or silence, is definitely a canvas which a musician paints upon. But as a musician, and, and reflecting on all the pieces that I've been involved with, I know that along the way, the tendency was to cover the canvas with sound and maybe work backwards, which I think happens in the visual arts as well. It happens a lot in life top-down processing. And in that pattern, we tend to forget that that is the foundation. And to build upon it is what we're doing. When we cover it all up, there is a tendency to forget that that's the foundation. In Indian classical music, there's what's called a drone, which is created in, in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's created by a, an instrument called the tambura which has four strings, and when you strike it, it can ring for a very, very long time. And it can just gives a continuous sound, and then they play over it. And when they play over it, you almost don't hear it. But as soon as the, the rest of the instruments stop, you hear it again. And you realize that if it wasn't there, everything would be different. So that is the actual depth of the message of Indian music, is that it's symbolic of the reality that underneath is this underlying unity or field or or consciousness or at least in the material sense there's a sound or there's a silence and that becomes the canvas that the artist paints upon but it's supposed to remind people to come back to themselves to come back to that silent space and to be able to reconnect with that and from that space build from that space speak and to do all the things that we do. So the people didn't receive it well in 1952. 
And when I tell the story to people, I say, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like, you know, how long it takes us to be able to appreciate what an artist is trying to do. And, and it's, and thank God we're past that. We're past that, but we're walking out on the current challenging thing. Always people are resisting the next step. You know, that's part of art to a great extent, you know, to challenge that and to try to usher in that next step. So some people have said, and continue to this day, to say that that piece is just nonsensical. It's a gimmick, it's like a child could come up with it, so there's no talent involved. Which also begs the question, does talent even need to be involved in music? There's a lot of those kind of reactions that exist to this day. My takeaway is, let me think about what led to that. Because I can't just take that piece of music from a composer and decide without any context whether or not that's sophisticated. In the Tao Te Ching, it says the most sophisticated art seems childish. So I remember that saying. So I thought, let me explore this a little bit deeper. And the fact that this was done in the theater means there's a lot of intention. Mm -hmm. The artists dressed up. The musicians were in their suits, the, the instruments were there. They cleaned their instruments, prepared their instruments, they came to the stage, and then they played a rest. You know? It's very purposeful, very intentional. It's not like they're just sitting around somewhere and saying, hey, let's just you know sit here for a minute. No, this was very purposeful, very intentional. That, that's very relevant. There was a gathering of people to witness this moment, or this four minutes and 33 seconds. Let's give a little more context and, and we'll see what maybe is behind this piece of music and, and what else it could mean. When we're confronted with silence ordinarily, it's like, grab this, just start filling in the space, you know? Fill in the time, fill in the quiet, fill in the silence, because it can be awkward when nothing seems to be happening. So we always want something to be happening, which then reinforces the belief that nothing's happening unless I'm doing a very stimulating activity. Because if I constantly got to fill in what seems like silence, and we're going to find out if this actually was silent when we get a little more context. But when it seems like silence, boom, I try to push back. When we're confronted with that, it's, uh, at first it's uncomfortable. 1952 is when that happened. So we'll back up a ways. When uh, Cage was born, it was 1912, I want to say. Probably in the 1930s, he studied at UCLA, and he was a pupil for some time of the composer uh, Arnold Schoenberg, who was considered the greatest experimental composer of the first half of the 20th century. Developed second Viennese school of classical music that was atonal. First Viennese classical school is Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven. Three three geniuses. Then Schoenberg started to really mess with harmony. Why do things have to sound good? I mean, is it our job to make everything sound good? And, and why do we have to follow all these strict rules of harmony? If there's still intention and there's still purpose, maybe it can sound really, really jarring. Maybe it can be built on mathematics. And so Cage was a pupil of Schoenberg. And Schoenberg told them, study, study, study harmony. Well, he's not doing anything harmonious. Why is he telling me to study, study, study harmony? Which means that Cage didn't start out with what seemed like a gimmick. 
So after that, he starts to compose, he's, and he's also a visual artist, he starts to experiment. He created a piece of music, Sonatas and Interludes, in 1947, mostly on piano, and it was praised. The New York Times called it haunting and beautiful or something like that. And Cage, they called now one of the greatest composers of, of America. So from there, he could have done anything. But when you have this context, it means this person definitely is talented. It's part of an evolution for something. So why did he go from there to evolving to this piece, which he reflects at the end of his life as his greatest work? Well, a few other things happened. In 1951, he wrote a piece called Music of Changes. Because at the time, he was studying the I Ching, which is a Chinese book that's thousands of years old. It's considered one of the first oracles of the planet. It's not really a book, but it's contained in the book. It was a strategy for gaining intuition. Ancient sages of China identified 64 hexagrams that had a message. And you could get one of these 64 hexagrams by tossing a group of sticks. It would form six lines. And depending on these six lines, you, there were two trigrams, and each trigram represents one of these elements. And when you bring them together, you get one of the 64 hexagrams. But since you're randomly tossing the sticks, there is an element of seeming randomness, but the sages will say, your own intuition is coming through. Because there's no other way that could have fallen other than the way that you tossed it. Then they would say, then the Tao, or God, or your higher self will communicate back to you. That the universe is always eager to express itself to us, but we don't listen. That we don't remain silent. We don't really have a conversation with our higher power, or with the universe, or with our higher self, because we're constantly talking. And we're constantly talking by constantly thinking. Our mind is always going, even though we don't want it to, it's so habitual now. So the sages in thousands of years ago said, okay, fine. There's 64 hexagrams. If you can't listen and don't see that the universe is trying, the Tao is trying to talk to you always, but you don't want to listen, then do this technique and you can consult the wisdom of your own spirit. And you'll get two hexagrams from this. The first one will come from throwing these six sticks. And some of the sticks will either be connected or disconnected in a way. If they're disconnected, that means that it's going to lead to a change. And when you add up the changes, you'll get a second hexagram. The first hexagram will indicate where you are with your situation or with your current problem or challenge in life. The second hexagram will tell you what's possible. That's why I Ching translates to the Book of Changes. So in 1951, when John Cage got exposed to the I Ching and Zen Buddhism, he started becoming silent. When he started becoming silent, he felt the universe communicating to him. And in 1951, he made a piece of music called Music of Changes. Every part of the music he consulted the I Ching for. He threw a hexagram or created a hexagram for every next moment in the music, and then he premiered it. And that was obviously significant in this evolution towards silence. So he's gaining something 
by stilling his mind and becoming receptive. In probably the year of his peace, maybe a year before, he is visiting what's called an anechoic chamber at Harvard University. An engineer at the time designed a room that was silent. All the walls, all the floors had pyramid-shaped structures filling the entire space in all directions. And it was made out of radiation-absorbing material called RAM material. And because of the design of the pyramids, it absorbed the sound. Nothing reflected back out into the room. So it essentially simulated being in space or being in a, a room where nothing could bounce off anything. There's no trees, there's no walls. Um, so nothing can echo. That's why it's called an anechoic chamber. Cage enters the room because he's interested in silence. And he goes in and he sits there silently. And he comes out and he says, that room's not silent. Tells the engineer that. And he says, I heard two sounds. One was low, one was high. He said, well, the low sound is the sound of your blood flowing through your veins. And the high one is your nervous system in operation. All frequencies affect us. We don't realize it, but they do. Frequency is a cycle which is measured in hertz. Hertz means cycles per second, which means how many times in a second does that thing happen? So in the case of a piano string, you strike the string, if you were looking at it, it's going like this. When you strike an A string on a piano, if it is in tune, it cycles up and down 440 times a second. That is a vibration. A vibration is a cycle. And if you go down an octave, you'll be at another A, and that means that that one will be vibrating at 220 times a second. And every vibration has an effect. I once took a function generator. A function generator is was my father's military device from the Navy, where you can just turn the dial and you change the frequency across a continuum. Like, and I hooked it to my ear, and I just gently and slowly scrolled through the spectrum of human hearing. And I found along the way, some frequencies hurt me, and some helped me. And I got to a high frequency, and it started to feel like it was gonna rupture my eardrum. It hurt so bad, and I had to stop it. So I thought, okay, that's too hot. But if I went one cycle per second above it, it didn't hurt anymore. So it had nothing to do with it being too high. It's that particular frequency is dangerous. So that's why when people are talking about good vibes, there really is a scientific basis to that. Everything is vibrating. Our heart is beating a certain amount of times per second. Our blood is circulating around our body. The earth is spinning on its axis a certain amount of times per second. It's very low, so it's a low frequency because it doesn't cycle even once in a second, right? It takes 24 hours to complete cycle. So in one second, it makes a very, very small fraction of a rotation, which means it's a very, very low frequency. But if you kept doubling it, you'd get an octave, you'd get an octave, you'd get an octave, and you double, 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 until it's in the range of human hearing. And some artists like our band play in harmony with that. Because we feel like even though you can't hear it, it's still a frequency and it still affects us. Just like every frequency does. So Cage is experimenting with this in the anechoic chamber. 
and he comes out and he says, I hear two frequencies. And the engineer knows this, and he says, yes, the one, the low hum is the blood, and the high frequency is the nervous system in operation. Now, that means we could all hear it, but we don't listen for it, and we don't put ourselves in a situation where it's quiet enough to hear it. That is what a lot of meditation practice is for, is to get things so quiet, so still, that you can start to hear these inner sounds. And then you hear the sound within the sound. That's what silence really is. And that's why in the spiritual traditions, they call it observing silence. Well, if it really is silent, there's nothing to observe, but obviously there is something to observe. Internal sounds. And what Cage came out realizing is that there is no silence. As long as something is happening, which something always is, there's plenty to listen to, and there's plenty of music happening. And that's what led him to the piece of 433, because he wanted to give that gift to, the, to mankind and to people. He was also practicing Zen Buddhism at the time. So, fast forward beyond the performance, and when he's responding to criticism, they're saying, nothing happened. He's saying, no, that's not true. In the first movement, the wind was blowing, and in the second movement, it started to rain, and started to drum on the roof. So there was percussion. In the third movement, people started to walk out. <laughs> so there, was, there was music, there was sound happening, happening throughout. He was also inspired by, um, by painter Robert Rauschenberg, who was a contemporary of his, and had released a series of blank canvases. And the canvases seemed like nothing at all. However, when they were in different environments, different things would happen. And Cage came to realize they're not blank. Something is happening there. There was a certain material that he did paint on it so that if someone entered the room, it changed. If the light shifted, it changed. If you put it in a different space, it changed. And different things would happen on that canvas. So he thought, okay, that's basically where we're at with experimentalism. He's like, I have to do the silent piece. Otherwise, music is lagging behind where, where the visual arts are. That's what brings us to 1952. And I think when you give it that context, you come to understand, okay, this isn't nonsensical. It's very, very purposeful. It's very, very thoughtful. And I think that's why in the end he reflects and says, you know, that's my most important work. So I think of, I think of John Cage when I think of silence as a musician. I think of another musician named Hazrat Inayat Khan who was a Sufi mystic and came to the West in the early part of the 20th century and for the most part introduced the concept of Sufi way of life to the Western world. So I wanted to read to you a little bit from his book called The Inner Life, which is all about stilling the mind and experiencing the music within. So he has a chapter called Repose. To give one more perspective from the Sufi tradition on how to make use of silence to cultivate mindfulness and to cultivate one's spiritual practice that leads to illumination and self-discovery. When the lips are closed, then the heart begins to speak. When the heart is silent, then the soul blazes up, raising its flame which illuminates the whole of life. 
It's this idea which demonstrates to the mystic the great importance of silence, which is gained by repose. See, most people don't know what repose means because it is something they feel they need when they're tired. Well, if they were not tired, they would never see the necessity for it. And surely this is, I'll pause it for a second, this is the case, right? The minute we even encounter something seemingly silent, we try to fill it. It's hard to be, in, to be in solitude, but only because he's saying we're not familiar with it. We're not acquainted with its value in life. And we only would find value in it if we're tired. We're, okay, I'm so tired, I don't want to be active anymore. And we go to sleep. Repose has many aspects. It is one kind of repose when a person retires from the activity of everyday life and finds himself alone in his room. He breathes a breath of thankfulness as he feels after all his interesting or tiresome experiences, that, quote, at last I'm by myself, end quote. It is not an ordinary feeling. There is a far deeper feeling behind it. It expresses the certainty that there is nothing to attract his mind and nothing which demands his action. That's when we retire. That's when we go to repose. And it's so interesting because there come a point in our day where Nothing is attractive anymore. I'm, I'm going to sleep now. Or, you know, there's something fun to do. Doesn't matter, I'm tired now, I'm exhausted. But it does have a deeper meaning as Hezrat and I kind of point out. It means that at some point, we realize there's nothing left for me in, in, this, in this world, in this reality. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. And we court sleep. We actually court silence at that point. But we're doing it in the negative way, from the darkness aspect. And that's why when we fall into it, it's dark. And that's why realization is known as illumination or enlightenment. Because when we enter into it, not because we're exhausted, but because we're seeking it in waking consciousness, then it's illumination, it's not darkness. So the darkness of deep sleep is totally peaceful. That's why people want to go back to it, and that's why people who are totally exhausted or fed up with life, maybe through a, a depressive episode or a suicidal episode, really want to sleep, basically permanently into repose. But when we do this from the positive aspect, stilling the mind in waking consciousness, then it's not dark, but the end result is the same. You feel totally peaceful and there's nothingness, or there's an emptiness. At that moment, his soul has a glimpse of relief, the pleasure of which is inexpressible. But the intoxication of life from which every man suffers is such that he cannot fully appreciate that moment of relief, which everyone expects when it is time to retire after the activities of his daily life, whether he be rich or poor, tired or not. Does this not teach us that there is a great mystery in repose, a mystery of which people are very often ignorant? Besides, we always find that a thoughtful person has repose by nature, and one who has repose is naturally thoughtful. It is repose which makes one more thoughtful, and it is continual action which takes away thoughtfulness, even from a sensible person. People working in different fields, upon whose mind there is a continual demand, often in time develop impertinence and lack of patience. They do not become less sensible, it only means that lack of repose 
which weakens their sense of control, makes them give way to such things. This shows that repose is necessary not only for a person on the spiritual path, but for every soul living on the earth, whatever be his grade of evolution or his standing in life. It is the most important thing to be developed in anyone's nature, not only in a grown-up person, but it is something which should be taught from childhood. Nowadays in education, people think so much about the different intellectual attainments the child will need in life, and so little about the repose which is so very necessary for a child. Can parents always answer their children's questions? There are some questions which can be answered, and others which should wait for an answer, until those who ask them are able to understand. I used to be fond of a poem which I didn't understand. I could not find a satisfactory explanation. After ten years, all of a sudden, in one second, a light was thrown upon it and I understood. There was no end to my joy. Does it not show that everything has its appointed time? When people become impatient and ask for an answer, something can be answered. Something else cannot be answered. But the answer will come in its own time. One has to wait. Has anyone in the world been able to fully explain what reality is? Can anyone explain such a word as love? Can anyone say what truth is? If truth is to be attained, it is only when truth itself has begun to speak, which happens in Revelation. Truth reveals itself. Therefore, the Persian word for truth is kuda, which means self-revealing. Besides this, the qualities of the heart are needed, with love as a first principle. Then one needs action, such action as will not hinder on the path of truth, such action as creates greater harmony, greater and greater harmony. And finally, one needs repose, which makes it possible to learn by one day of silence what otherwise would take a year of study, if only one knows the real way of silence. So to learn how to make use of repose in daily life, maybe I can't be alone much because I have a family, but can I sit for five minutes without actively filling in the silence and then observe silence? Observe silence means you find that nothing's truly silent because as John Cage found out, I could hear my own heart. I could feel my own nervous system and hear it in operation. And listening to that, we start to hear what's underneath everything. We can't get the intuition because we don't listen. And we demand an answer immediately. When you hit a wall, step back, go within yourself, recharge your battery. 